Nahum 3. Woe to the city of blood, full of lies, full of plunder, never without victims. The crack of whips, the clatter of wheels, galloping horses and jolting chariots. Charging cavalry, flashing swords and glittering spears. Many casualties, piles of dead. Bodies without number, people stumbling over the corpses. All people of the wanton lust of, of a harlot. Alluring the mistress of sorceries. Who enslaves nations by her prostitution and peoples by her witchcraft. I am against you, declares the Lord Almighty. I will lift your skirts over your face. I will show the nations your nakedness and the kingdoms your shame. I will pelt you with filth. I will treat you with contempt and make you a spectacle. All who see you will flee from you and say, Nineveh is in ruins. Who will mourn for her? Where can I find anyone to comfort you? Are you better than Thebes, situated on the Nile, with water around her? The river was her defence, the waters her wall. Cush and Egypt were her boundless strength. Put and Libya, and Libya were among her allies, yet she was taken captive and went into exile. Her infants were dashed to pieces. At the head of every street, lots were cast for her nobles and all her great men were put in chains. You too will become drunk. You will go into hiding and seek refuge from the enemy. All your fortresses are like fig trees with their first ripe fruit. When they are shaken, the figs fall into the mouth of the eater. Look at your troops. They are all women. The gates of your land are wide open to your enemies. Fire, your fire has consumed their bars. Draw water from the siege, strengthen your defences, work the clay, tread the mortar, repair the brickwork. There the fire will devour you, the sword will cut you down, and like grasshoppers consume you. Multiply like grasshoppers, multiply like locusts. You have increased the number of your merchants till they are more than the stars of the sky. But like locusts, they strip the land and then fly away. Your guards are like locusts, your officials like swarms of locusts that settle in the walls on a cold day. But when the sun appears, they fly away and no one knows where. O king of Assyria, your shepherds, Slumber, your nobles lie down to rest. Your people are scattered on the mountains with no one to gather them. Nothing can heal your wound. Your injury is fatal. Everyone who hears the news about you claps his hands at your fall. For who has not felt your endless cruelty? Thanks, Drew. Uh, please keep your Bibles open. Um, there's a lot in there, I think that's, uh, to say the least, uh, and a lot of difficult stuff too. 
and if you have your Bible in front of you, you'll be able to follow along um, as we work our way through these verses. Um, as a kid, I, I remember uh, in every corner store you ever went to, in every petrol station, every grocery store uh, that you ever went to, behind the counter was always the same thing. Uh, it was the smokes display. Uh, I don't know if you remember that. That's what, 20, 30 years ago now. Colourful packets, unusual names, exotic names. Uh, I never smoked, but I always found that display really intriguing. I, I just, I just want to know. I just want to know what they're all about. Uh, of course, that's all changed. Uh, things are different today. Um, strategies have been brought in to discourage uh, smoking, um, all sorts of different things. Prices have gone up. The, the smokes disappeared out of sight. They went into plain packaging. All these things have been done. Uh, they've had some results, limited results perhaps. And in past years, I don't know if you've noticed this, but in past years it's really ramped up. Um, ads on TV have become even more blunt and, and grotesque, you know, the, the tar-filled lungs and the brain dissections and all these testimonies with people with awful uh, results of smoking. And, and the packaging as well. I don't know if you, you don't see this very often anymore, but the packaging, it's not even, plain is not enough. That awful brown colour is not enough anymore. Now they've got pictures of gangrenous feet and, and rotting tumours and all sorts of disgusting things. It makes you recoil just to look at the packet. It's gross. Why? Why have they done this? Well, it's to confront us, isn't it? You know, it's, it's to shock you. It's to make you look at that and, and, and recoil. It, the underlying message, of course, is very simple. Don't smoke. <laughs> it's a simple message, but telling people that is pretty ineffective. So confront people. Confront them again and again. Put these awful things before them. Because this serious message needs serious means uh, to communicate it. And Nahum 3 is a bit similar. The underlying message here is, is really quite simple. God judges evil. But the words themselves, that, that, that would not have surprised anyone. But the pictures, they might have. I mean, who, who can read this chapter and, and not just be confronted by it? Uh, who can read these verses and the, the imagery here and, and not be shocked? It is so graphic. Uh, it's so bloody and awful. And it's intentional. It is here to snap us out of our apathy, to make us sit up and pay attention. Because what we have here is an important and a serious message. God judges evil... And this is what it looks like. Now it is assurance. You might remember Nahum, his name means comfort. He is writing to comfort God's people, telling them God will judge, God will destroy, God will deal with all evil. It's an assurance, but it's also a challenge as well. Heed the warning here. God will judge evil and when that day comes don't find yourself on the wrong side because it will surely come and it will surely be terrible. And we're going we're to see both of those themes assurance and challenge as we work our way through this passage this morning. Now I don't know much about poetry, that will not surprise you uh, but I'm told, I'm told that Nahum is a supreme poet and look, when you read it I think you, you, you see that. Uh, Nahum is a supreme poet, not to impress people, not to show off his skills. He's not a high school student with a thesaurus trying to get better marks. 
He, he writes in this way, he, he uses every ounce of his skill as a poet to bring the impact of his message to us even more clearly. Just, just look again at verses 1 to 3. Woe to the city of blood, full of lies, full of plunder, never without victims. The crack of whips, the clatter of wheels, galloping horses and jolting chariots, charging cavalry, flashing swords and glittering spears. Many casualties, piles of dead, bodies without number, people stumbling over the corpses. It's, it's vivid, isn't it? It's, it's full of action and movement and, and pictures and imagery. There's whips and wheels and galloping and charging and flashing. It's, it's all before you, this, this barrage of images. And the picture he's painting is clear. Assyria, uh, Nineveh, the, the, the nation, is a nation of action, a people of action. They are decisive, they are powerful, they are swift and they are severe. Uh, Nahum describes the city, a city built on blood, a city established in conquest, a city founded on corpses. Why? Why is it so awful? Well, because she's a whore or a harlot, depending on your translation. Look at verse 4. All because of the wanton lust of a harlot, alluring the mistress of sorceries who enslaved nations by her prostitution and peoples by her witchcraft. Uh, Why does she get this really awful description? Well, she's been a nation, she's been a city that has traded favours for gain. Um, nations would come to Assyria. We, we see this uh, in all sorts of documents from the time. They'd say, uh, and Assyria would say, yes, we'll, we'll come and help you, small nation. Uh, we'll come and, and, and beat your enemies and, and win your victories. We'll just put some troops in your land and we'll just have a bit of a say in how you're ruled and we'll just take taxes and you'll never get rid of us. <laughs> we own you now. Assyria gives little but takes much and she pursues her own gain So she's a prostitute. Uh, She also prostitutes her goddess, the prostitute goddess Ishtar, spreading her lies, spreading her worship, bringing her influence wherever she goes. Now Nineveh was a very effective prostitute. We're going to look at a map later. We'll see that she was the world power at the time. Uh, The whole of the Middle East and Central Asia down into Egypt was firmly under her control and influence. She was a huge and bloody empire. To which God says this, verse 5, I am against you, declares the Lord Almighty. I will lift your skirts over your face. I will show the nations your nakedness and the kingdoms your shame. I will pelt you with filth. I will treat you with contempt and make you a spectacle. All who see you will flee from you and say, Nineveh is in ruins. Who will mourn for her? Where can I find anyone to comfort you? Nahum's name means comfort. His job is to bring comfort. But even he can't find a comforter to to bring any hope to Nineveh. Because God's promise is he is going to expose this city. He is going to expose all its sordid deeds. Metaphorically, he's going to lift its skirts and shine a light into all its corruption. And the whole world We'll see exactly who she is. We'll see exactly what she's done and how vile her deeds are and they will despise her. And this is not just directed to Nineveh. This is God's promise 
of how he's going to deal with all evil. He is going to oppose evil. He is going to be against it. He is going to unveil it and he is going to expose it for what it really is. Evil thrives in the shadows, it grows in darkness and God is going to shine a light into all of it and show it for what it is. Not only to expose it, but so that everyone will see just how worthy of punishment it is. Because when evil is revealed, when it's seen for what it is, it is hated and it's seen as deserving of destruction. Because that's what happens when when dirty little secrets come to light. Uh, You might remember a few years back the the Trump election campaign, um, all sorts of things came out during that, but there was that one particular revolting little soundbite Uh, of him bragging about women, you you know the one. You you can do anything, he said, grab them, it doesn't bear repeating. Uh, He was still elected, amazingly, um, but the damage, the damage is irreparable, isn't it? And we saw it a few weeks ago, or a few months ago now. Uh, The British ambassador to the US had a very unfortunate memo of his leaked uh, in which he described the US administration as dysfunctional, unpredictable, clumsy and inept. But he felt a little bit awkward when that was the next day's headline. Uh, and, and didn't it cause trouble? Didn't it cause tension? They, these dirty little secrets, when they're brought to light, everyone reviles them. And we might point the finger, you know, how stupid are people to say such things? But what about you? How would your family know, uh, feel if they, they knew what you had said about them when they're not there? Would you still have your job? if your boss knew how you describe his business and him? Would you still have friends if your secret conversations were exposed, let alone your deeds and your thoughts? (laughs) That's an uncomfortable thought, isn't it? God is going to expose all evil. He's going to uncover all filth. That's his promise here. He's going to show it to all. He's going to make it seen for what it really is. And it's going to be like that, you know that moment, you, you go to the fruit bowl, you, you grab that fine looking orange, you pick it up and the bottom is that grey fuzzy mould and you, you throw it away in disgust. It's the same thing here. What looked fine, what was hidden is going to be revealed and the world is going to recoil with disgust and hatred. Now for God's people this is a promise of comfort and hope. Because remember, there are people who've seen Assyria's evil firsthand. They have experienced it for themselves and now God is promising to them it's not going to go on forever. It's not going to just continue as is. I am going to cast it down. I'm going to expose them and they're going to be reviled and destroyed. And not just Nineveh, but all evil. All evil is going to be shown for what it is. It's going to be hated and it's going to be dealt with. What a comfort for us too. It is not always going to be this way. Evil will not endure. Its corruption will be exposed and it will be ended. It is an immense comfort. But it's also a challenge. How would you go, how would I go, if our lives were exposed? If we were, we were shown, put on display for the whole world to see, where are we going to stand? 
how would the world react if your life was tomorrow's headlines? Uh, I'm going to guess, not good. That's a terrifying thought. Uh, Jesus said this in John chapter 3, Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. Because who wants that? Who wants to be seen like that? So what do we do in the face of a God who exposes evil? Well, the first thing is we remember. We remember that this day, this day of exposure, this day of bringing light, hasn't yet come. It's already come to Assyria. That happened a long time ago. But it has not yet come to all men and to all evil. It will come, but not yet. Because now is still the time of mercy. And in this time, God is and is is, is holding and, and, and... giving this wonderful provision. Uh, He he tells of it in Romans chapter 4, verse 7. He says, Blessed are those whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed are those for whom there is a covering. Not exposure, but a covering over. It's possible, he says, forgiveness for all those things is possible. How? only by being covered, only by being forgiven in Jesus. This is what we read in Galatians chapter 3. You are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who are baptised into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. That, That is dressed, that is covered, not to be exposed, not to be naked, not to be seen in all your hideous evil, but covered and dressed and clothed, in fact, with the very righteousness of Jesus. So that when you're shown, it won't be your evil, it won't be all your deeds that you prefer never to be seen, it won't be hate and and, and reviling coming your way, you'll be seen as covered, as clothed, as forgiven and loved. And only through trusting him and the free offer of grace made in Jesus. And so this passage is hope, isn't it? Evil is going to be exposed. It's going to be ended, but not you. If you're in Jesus, if you have put your trust in him, because if that's the case, when that day comes, and it will, you'll be covered and you'll be confident. So Nineveh is going to be exposed. All evil is going to be exposed. It's going to be shown. It's going to be hated. And as we see next, it is going to be utterly destroyed. That's what God foretells uh, in verse 8. Come with me down to verse 8. Are you better than Thebes, situated on the Nile with water around her? The river was her defence, the waters her wall. Cush and Egypt were her boundless strength. Put and Libya were among her allies. Yet she was taken captive and went into exile. Her infants were dashed to pieces at the head of every street. Lots were cast for her nobles and all her great men were put in chains. You too will become drunk. You will go into hiding and seek refuge from the enemy. Uh, Only a few years before Nahum wrote um, this book, the the nation of Assyria destroyed the city of Thebes. We've got a a map. Um, Hopefully that is visible enough. Not that map, that map. That's the Assyrian Empire. You probably can't read anything on that, but you kind of you can see the Persian Gulf, the Red Sea. It's big. You can see it's big. It covers all that land. And see that little dog leg down to the bottom left? 
That's the city of Thebes. That's a long way away from the rest of the Assyrian Empire. It was thought untouchable. Uh, great defences, waters all around it, huge walls, surrounded by allies. All of those nations around there were allies. No one thought anyone could touch Thebes. Until Assyria did and utterly destroyed it. Anyway, you can... Yep, that's good. Assyria had done the impossible. They had thrown down the untouchable city. And now God's saying, let's turn that back on you. You think Thebes was untouchable? Well, look what you did to it. Don't be proud. If you could do that to them, someone can do it to you too. Uh, And what we have in these verses is exactly what they did to Thebes, uh, what they did to many cities. Uh, And the warning, God says, it's going to come to you too. You're going to experience what you have done to others. Now, it's hard reading. It's it's awful reading, uh, if we're honest. It's graphic. um, It's confronting and we don't have time to to deal with uh, or fully explore with, with all the awful things here. But I want to say a few things. Uh, just in response to these verses, in, in response to our reaction, I think, against it. First of all, we need to say that God is sovereign. Uh, God uses nations to achieve his purposes and he even uses evil nations. He even uses evil nations doing evil things without condoning what they're doing. When, when God does this, when God uses it, he's not approving of their actions, he is using their actions and working through them. Uh, when we read things like this, we need to bring balance to it. We need to, to, to understand this in the context of Scripture. Um, God is good, God is just. We're told God doesn't delight in the death uh, of those who are innocent. But we need to balance that with the, the, also the, the truth that God punishes r- rightly, completely and justly uh, all who do evil and all who rebel against him. But we also need to read this remembering that the one who speaks of something so awful even as the death, death of infants is also the one who willingly gave his own son to bring an end to such atrocities. See, God is not remote, God is not distant from things like this. He is intensely involved in the world. He is invested and he is acting to bring an end to such things. And so what we have in these verses here is God foretelling what is going to happen to Assyria, what they've done so often to others is coming back to them and its destruction. Look at verse 12. All your fortresses are like fig trees with their first ripe fruit. When they are shaken, the figs fall into the mouth of the eater. Look at your troops. They're all women. Uh, That's politically incorrect today. We'll say they're all children. The gates of your land are wide open to your enemies. Fire has consumed their bars. Draw water for the siege, strengthen your defences, work the clay, tread the mortar, repair the brickwork. There the fire will devour you. The sword will cut you down and like grasshoppers consume you. Um, I, I don't know if you've got a fig tree. Um, the first figs, they're the easiest to pick. All you have to do is walk to the tree and give it a shake and they literally drop into your hand. Um, it's, it's, an, it's an idiom of the day. We might say it's like taking candy from a baby. That's how easily Nineveh is going to fall. There's going to be no opposition because God's against it. It's, 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 it's not even going to be able to put up any defence. 
Uh, God says, get ready, do whatever you want. You know, draw your water, make your defences strong, make bricks. It's going to count for nothing. You're going to be caught out. You're going to be defeated. God is not just going to dis, uh, defeat Nineveh, Assyria. He's going to humiliate them. He's going to destroy them and, and wipe them out as if they were nothing. And at the end of the day, there will be nothing left. I mean, you can imagine, imagine the Richmond Tigers announcing, now they didn't have a game this week, they're going to come down to the northwest coast and just play to keep sharp. Uh, and they're going to play East Olveston. Uh, not in a friendly either, they're going to come down and play competitively. They're going to bring their full premiership team. Uh, it's going to be their tune-up. You can imagine how that's going to go, can't you? No, nothing against East Olverson. Uh, they can do whatever they want for the next week. They can train, they can prepare, they can take all the performance-enhancing drugs they want. They can see any doctor to get anything done. It's not going to matter. They are going to get wiped off the park. And God's saying, that's coming to you, Nineveh. And not just to Nineveh, that's his promise to evil in general. You are going to get wiped off the park. You are going to be wiped out completely and utterly gone. When I oppose you, there will be nothing left. Not even a contest. Now incredibly, we've actually seen this play out. Um, we, We can read about what happened to the city of Nineveh. We can see that it was totally and utterly destroyed by Babylon. Uh, It it put up a little bit of a fight but it was just completely wiped out. But what's more, we can see the greater promise here also coming true. We can see evil itself being defeated, eliminated, wiped out on the cross. Here's how the Bible describes it. 1 Corinthians 15, death being swallowed up in victory. Uh, Colossians 2, sin being made a spectacle of on the cross. Hebrews 2, the devil's power being broken once and for all. See, God has done what he promised here. He's brought the utter humiliation and defeat of evil already even far before our time. Uh, not in some dramatic battle with you know, thousands of, of, of people and, and beings of incredible power on either side. Not you know, the scene from Avengers Endgame. It's not like that. It's not that huge battle. Instead, it involves one. One man on one cross and in that moment in the death of his son is the destruction of all evil and as if that itself wasn't amazing enough we're told that victory is ours if we are in him that is linked to him by faith this is what Romans 8 tells us in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. We are, it's, it's ours, his victory is given to us. You've won. Uh, not because you were so great at fighting, but because he was so great at fighting on your behalf. He has cut the head off the snake and its end is guaranteed. Its death is assured. Sure, the body still thrashes. Sure, its influence is around, but its end approaches and it is not far away. God has fulfilled his promise. He has done what he has said he would do. In the death and resurrection of Jesus, evil is not only humiliated, it is ended. What a hope and comfort for us. Evil's day has come. God hasn't just levelled the playing field, he's swept it. Evil's not eternal. 
I think we need to remember this sometimes. We, we need to be reminded. Evil won't last forever. It's not going to continue you know, side by side with good, locked in this perpetual struggle for all time. It, its day is coming. One day it will be gone. One day nothing, nothing at all, not even a memory will remain of evil and sin. What a comfort. And what a challenge. I mean, how undeserving of that are we? Uh, remember, remember, if we were exposed, we would be seen as evil. If, if we were shown, we would be seen to be deserving this, to be on the other side. But as we saw, that day is coming, but not yet here. And still, still today, incredibly, it's still the day of mercy. Romans 5 reminds us, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. When we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son. That is how good God's grace is, that today, still today, his enemies can be his friends. For his son has died for them, his son has died for us too. And if you trust in him, then this message is not your end, it's not a a story of your end, but a story of your hope. For he forgives, he restores, he reconciles and you are made free. Knowing your old master is ended, knowing evil is beaten and knowing that you are kept by his powerful love. Because that end is sure. God promises that on that day there will be nothing left, nothing left at all. Look at the second half of verse 15. Multiply like grasshoppers, multiply like locusts. You have increased the number of your merchants till they are more than the stars of the sky, but like locusts they strip the land and then fly away. Your guards are like locusts, your officials like swarms of locusts that settle in the walls on a cold day. But when the sun appears they fly away and no one knows where. O king of Assyria, your shepherds slumber, your nobles lie down to rest. Your people are scattered on the mountains with no one to gather them. Not only is Nineveh to be exposed, not only is it to be humiliated, but it's also going to be scattered. Um, with, with all its conquests, rich, riches had flown in. It was a wealthy city. With all those riches, what comes? More merchants. With more merchants come more riches. And this went on, this increased, until they were like stars, until they were like locusts. But on this day, they're no more. They're going to be scattered. They're going to flee like rats deserting a sinking ship. But it wasn't just riches. Uh, with conquest came military strength. I mean, everyone wants to be on the winning side, don't they? And, and nations and soldiers flock to join them, to take part, to be, be guards of this vast empire. But God says on that day, they too are going to be scattered. They're going to abandon this fallen city. They're going to go off to better pastures, to greener fields. And not just the army as well. This vast empire required many rulers, many leaders. Well, what about them when the crisis hits? What are they going to do? Well, God says they're not even going to be found. They're going to abdicate their role. They're going to sleep through this storm and as their people flee, as their people are oppressed, the rulers are just going to let them go. They're going to completely give up their job and serve themselves. On that day, no one will gather. No one will restore. They will be gone. They will be scattered. 
and never to return. Because when God uh, opposes evil, he's thorough. There is nothing left. There is no second chance. Uh, it's a bit like how you're meant to deal with a campfire. Um, you know, you go camping, you go to the bush, everyone loves a campfire, you, you light it up, you're responsible, you put it in the right place uh, and you know that when you leave the responsible thing to do is put it out. Uh, you know the risks, you know what could happen uh, if you don't uh, and so you sprinkle water over it. Now if you've read the signs or the camping guide or if you were a scout, uh, you'd know that just sprinkling water isn't actually enough. You're supposed to go the extra measure. Uh, you're actually supposed to put the water on and then with your shovel, assuming you've got one, you're a scout, you're prepared, of course you have one, you dig over the ashes, you turn them over and you turn them over and you pour more water and then you spread them out, you scatter them because when the ashes are spread, uh, there's no way that together they can build up enough heat to, to reignite and, and be a threat. And God's saying, I'm going to treat you like a campfire, Nineveh. You're so powerful, so great and I'm going to put you out, I'm going to scatter you completely. And that's how I'm going to deal with all evil, God says. Thoroughly and completely. Its end is bleak. Nothing will remain. Nothing at all. That's a challenging thought, isn't it? Uh, if you talk to the average person on the street, if you, if you poll our society, the, the, the kind of cultural myth that exists at the moment is you know, if, if, uh, if God exists, if he exists... He obviously can't be too fussed about bad stuff, can he? I mean, maybe disapproving, but really not too crabby because if he was, wouldn't he have done something by now? Wouldn't he have dealt with it? You know, maybe God's not that powerful and if he is powerful, maybe he's just not that interested. And to some extent, that can kind of creep into Christian circles as well, can't it? Maybe God isn't actually that angry. You know, maybe God's changed. Maybe sin actually isn't that bad. I mean, God's a God of love. Could he really do this sort of stuff? Well, Nahum is a slap in the face to that thought because, as we've seen, this is not specific to Nineveh. This is God's plan for evil in general, to expose it and humiliate it and scatter it. It is harsh, it is severe and it is inescapable. You know, we, we have this tendency to treat it so lightly. You know, oh, it's not that bad. It, it doesn't really matter, does it, surely? God will forgive. That's his job. Um, you know, people, people talk about how hell as if it wasn't even that bad. You know, if I go there, at least all the interesting people go there. Well, God says maybe so, but not to party. They're there because he scatters evil, uh, godlessness, it promises all sorts of things. Uh, it says go your own way, there, there's, there's gain, there's security there, there's company, lots of people are doing the same. There's all sorts of freedoms. And God says go that way and there is humiliation and shame and isolation. And even though it hasn't happened yet, it will happen soon. Here's what Peter writes in his second letter in chapter 3. By the same word, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. But do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years are like a day. 
The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness, saying the day is coming. Yeah, God judges time differently to us, but the day is coming, a day of fire, a day of destruction, a day of judgment. It is not, uh, it's not put on the hook forever. The clock is counting down. Why hasn't it come yet? Well, Peter continues. He says, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. See, God hasn't uh, dealt with evil, not because he's ignorant of it or not because he doesn't want to. He's not acted because he's merciful, because he's patient, because he's waiting, because he's longing for more and more people to come to repentance and to, to escape that day. And for those who do repent, for those who do return to him, he promises something that is truly remarkable. He says to them, you're not going to be scattered. You're not going to be like Nineveh, alone and scared and in danger. He he says this in John chapter 10, Jesus speaking, I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me, just as the Father knows me and I know the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. God's people will not be scattered, will not be abandoned to themselves, not be left alone and scared and in danger because God has sent the Good Shepherd. He's not selfish, he'll not flee when hardship comes. He knows his sheep, he knows them by name. He loves them and he looks after them. And not just today, but forever. You might remember from the book of Revelation the picture of eternity we get there in chapter 7. This is what we read. For the lamb at the centre of the throne will be their shepherd. That's all of God's people will be their shepherd. He will lead them to springs of living water and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. See, the good shepherd doesn't flee when hardship comes. He doesn't uh, run away when the crisis strikes the good shepherd lays down his life to save his sheep from the judgement and destruction and scattering that they deserved. He didn't remove himself from that, he stepped more into it to forgive and redeem those who repent. And the good shepherd lives today to lead those sheep, to guide and protect and gather because they are precious to him, not only today, but for all eternity to come. What a hope, what a comfort we have in him. So verse 19. Nothing can heal your wound. Your injury is fatal. Everyone who hears the news about you claps his hands at your fall, for who has not felt your endless cruelty? We're not glad to see other people face God's judgment. We're not glad to see their hurt and their punishment and their suffering. But we are glad to see an end. Just like end of World War II, VE Day in Europe, the streets were filled with people dancing, not because Germans were suffering or had suffered or terrible things had happened to them. They were glad because an end had come, because a full stop had been put on suffering, because victory had been won and so to us. Rejoice. Give thanks. Celebrate because evil is ended. God has won. And your freedom, your life is secured. God judges evil. God beats evil. God is victorious. 
and by his grace you are saved. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you for your goodness, for your justice, for your power. For you are not a God who is content to let evil endure. You will not tolerate injustice forever. But in your righteousness, in your justice, you act. Father, it amazes us to see how rightly, how powerful you act. It amazes us to see how merciful you still are. Even now, delaying, being patient with the world so that more would repent, so that more would escape what they rightly deserve. Father, we praise you for your grace in Jesus. That against all the odds, against all that was deserved, you rescue, you redeem, you free. Father, we thank you that you have saved us. That by putting our faith in you, that you are our help that we can be hopeful and confident. Father, we pray for those we know and love, the many that we see around us in our community, in our world, who knowingly or unknowingly are still living in rebellion against you and are headed to this type of judgement. Father, that, that thought shocks us and it horrifies us and we plead with you that you will be patient and merciful with them and that you will show to them the grace and love in Jesus alone that can save them. Father, please rescue many, even as you prepare for that day when you will deal with evil. In Jesus, our Saviour's name we pray. Amen.